Hi, and welcome to June Millington and Friends, a podcast about music, why we do it, how we do it, the magical and spiritual aspects of writing and reaching deep inside ourselves. So dive deep with us. It's sponsored by the Institute for the Musical Arts, and if you'd like to support our efforts, please go to www.ima.org and click on any donate button. Thank you. See? <laughs> well, Jamie Sieber, thanks so much for joining me. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. It's a pleasure and a thrill for me. Thank you. Thank you. But I have to say, being here at IMA this trip in 2018 has given me a, even a deeper appreciation for what you and Anne have created here and what so many musicians and artists have been a part of. For these girls. What in particular took you around the bend in a good way? As we get further and further away from including arts in school curriculum and in school life and in education, and as we get further away from young people connecting with each other, you know, except through a gadget, I just feel like some of my richest years were in orchestras. You know, really? in okay. ensembles, in in collaboration and in community around making music when I was in school. Well, let me ask you something that I'm I'm actually quite curious about, and that is, I've only known you playing electric cello, mm. so there had to been a, have been a switch, right, from yeah acoustic cello to electric. Do you mind my asking you to tell us just a little bit about that? No, that's why okay. we're here. Okay. We're just jumping right in. (laughs) Um, Well, I grew up playing classical cello. My father was a music professor, orchestra and choir director. My mother was a singer. And music was always in the house. And I think my father and mother had four children so they could have a quartet. I think that was in their vision, you know, let's do a quartet. That's fantastic. Um, but I had heard a cello as a young girl. This woman played cello with an orchestra that my dad was with, conducting. And what orchestra was that? University of Minnesota Orchestra. I just remember, like, wow, that sound and the way that she was wrapped around the instrument. So I started playing cello at seven. My dad was my first teacher. And and then we moved into classical. You know, I moved into orchestras. You and I have talked over the last 48 hours about how the Midwest was this really beautiful, fertile ground for music and young people. And the reason I know that is some of the best musicians I've met, I'm speaking about women in particular, yeah. who so often don't even have a chance to enter music with permission from the education system and society, but some of the best women musicians I've ever worked with have come from the Midwest. I mean, I noticed that. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and you are a Midwesterner, so we started to talk about that. Yeah, Minnesota. Minnesota. But I grew up playing classical, and while I loved it, and while I loved orchestra, and I loved the collaboration, I knew I didn't want to be a classical musician. It was really clear. So when I left home at 18, I went traveling on the East Coast. I let go of playing cello, and then I settled in Seattle. I heard about Seattle. You let go of playing cello? I did. I did. I so was, what were you doing? Well, I just took the cello. <laughs> well, I was going to go to nursing school. 
Gotcha. Yeah, I went to nursing school in Seattle. I had my cello, and in fact, I was about to sell my cello to pay for school. And biggest mistake ever, but, you know, I wasn't going to play, and I needed money. And I went to a coffee shop with a friend, and Charlie Murphy was there, who was a singer-songwriter, gay man, who was very much into the political world of building community, not only within the gay um, male population, but also it was during a time when gay men and lesbians were just starting to sort of want to trust each other again and, and come together. It was in the 79, 80. That's when AIDS hit in the Bay Area. I know that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And lesbians were in the forefront of jumping yes, in more. That's to, right. to respond. Yeah, that's right. And so he said, he met me and he goes, oh, I've always wanted to play with a cellist. And, you know, such a line. But I said, oh, I've never improvised, but let's try it. And it was then that I went and to his apartment and brought my cello and never having improvised, but suddenly to hear songs about the witch burnings and about men speaking out against violence against mm. women and songs about the earth and songs about... We need to revive the, his oh, music. Oh, totally, totally. I need to listen to his music. His music yeah. was... His lyrics were so ahead of of the time back then okay. and was such a response. And uh, there were many musicians who were really into being cultural workers during yes. that time. Yes. Many women, you know, Holly Near, the Weavers, mm-hmm. Pete Seeger. But Charlie was in the gay male movement. So I started playing. This is a long answer, I'm sorry. <laughs> but This is fantastic. Oh, thank you. So Charlie and I started touring this little folk duo, and I started a folk exploring duo. my chops in improvisation and playing off the page. And was terrifying. Let's just explain to people what off the page is, because that is so important. It's really important. I oftentimes, classical musicians will come up to me and they're terrified. Like, how do I make the leap yes. to play music that's not written on a page in front of me? Because that's what we learn how to play. We learn how to read music. Yes. That's what classical musicians do. And you play do. somebody else's Ideas and great creations. Yes. But they're not yours. They're not yours. And that's how you learn your instrument. Mm. So playing off the page is suddenly playing with your ears. Yes. You know, playing from the heart, playing with any sense you want to explore. So at that point, you've got your mind heart connection along with, I'm going to say at this moment, the result is magic. Mm -hmm. But actually, all three are working together as you get more into it and you realize, well, I love that Nadia Boulanger said to Quincy Jones, well, there's only 12 notes right. <laughs> in this scale. So why don't you just explore mm-hmm. what those 12 notes can do? I actually think of it as seven because we all work off the major scale so the much. Scale. Yeah. But okay, 12. Yeah. However, that's not so many notes. That's not so many notes, but that's that's our scale. That's our scale that's... and we can have fun with it. We can. Totally... We don't have to be afraid of 12 notes, do we? No, and in fact, some of the real juice in the fire comes when you play, when you slide into those notes and when you pour every 
ounce into the note that isn't necessarily right on tune, but then slides into it. So it was really a great experience. And we toured together for five years as a folk duo. And we started getting more and more a little rockish in our playing. And all of a sudden people were like, oh, you should start a rock band. So we started a rock band. It was that that easy. It was that easy. Oh, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, why not? Snap, okay. And so we got a drummer. We got a bass player. We got a keyboard player. And suddenly my little acoustic cello, I'd be sawing away, and it couldn't be heard. (laughs) I'd be sawing away, away, you know. I know. Little Jamie Seymour sawing away with that rhythm section. Yeah, yeah. Uh And a cellist in Seattle, Eric Jensen, had designed a prototype for an electric cello and he saw me in performance and he said you know I've got this electric cello I want you to try and I immediately loved it it's minimalist body it's five strings it's got a high E so it goes into that viola violin range and I could turn it up to 11. <laughs> I could go really oh, loud you know and not it. have feedback so it and was, not have feedback. Let me process that for a second. Yeah, because amazing. with the acoustic cello, you've yeah. got the resonant body, and it's like with an acoustic guitar. Sure. You're also yeah. having to manage the harmonics and the reverberations and yeah. the echoing within the chamber of the right, instrument, right. whereas the solid body, it's just the pure signal. So you made that shift, and it was easy, and Charlie liked mm. it, the band oh, liked it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. Babe, rock So and then roll. we, Rumors of the Big Wave was our band. How did that name come? Well, Charlie was trying to think of a name that, that gave image to a change in consciousness. And at mm-hmm. that time, The Last Wave was this really popular yes. Australian film. It's a great name. Yeah, and so Fantastic. Rumors of the Big Wave was sort of like this big wave of consciousness yeah. that is shifting mm-hmm. and that image that also invoked the earth, which was sort of at mm-hmm. the core in many ways. So it was very, I, I mean, I, I hesitate to use the word pagan because it's been so yes. um, overused and, and sort of people don't like it, but really and earth-centered. Yeah. Yes, it's I was going to say, what does pagan mean to you? And you just to me, it's that. earth-centered. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah. it's that religion or that spiritual recognition that the earth well plus hello power mm-hmm. and we are getting i believe as do many others getting towards the beginning of the dismantling of patriarchy yeah therefore anything that refers to the mother and power like the word pagan has i think been denigrated just from Completely. whether conscious or unconscious fear mm-hmm. through that mechanism okay so rumors of the big wave Paganism, electric cello, we are getting political pop. I mean, as probably you experienced, as many of us experienced when we were doing the music that we loved, suddenly we were feeding communities that were involved in activism, that were involved in in that shift in consciousness. Mm -hmm. And what an exciting time. I was just going to say, you took the words right out of my brain. An exciting time. It was. Right. Oh, my God. I feel so blessed that Mm -hmm. we would go and just (laughs) do these events. Give Peace a Dance was this 24-hour 
Peace dance marathon in Seattle. And, and we, you would play as long as you we wanted? Were, no, we were sort of the highlight band. We were always oh brought in God. at midnight to wow. sort of bring in wow. the middle of the 24-hour. And it was so fabulous. We need to bring that back. We totally do. Huh. We totally do. You know, I have such great memories of the music that mm-hmm. Charlie and I did. And, and then it was I was done with the band. It, it reached really? a time where it was like... Mm-hmm. Charlie and I had a great partnership, but me being the woman was always, I took on and was always in the role, almost almost as band mother. And I was like, I'm kind of ready to not have (laughs) six children, you know, and, and, you know, try to negotiate such a big traveling thing. Okay, speaking of children, (laughs) you are the second of four four kids. Four, yeah. And so you naturally kind of, no, the peacemaker role, shall I we know say? I know the peacemaker role. Okay. Where were you born? I, I kind of want to get back to the roots and how yeah. the, 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 um, the earth mother of the Midwest yeah. supporting music. So would you just tell us a little bit about your parents? Your I think sure. Norwegian-German? Norwegian. My mom's Norwegian. Her parents were children of Norwegian immigrants, and they were farmers in northeast mm-hmm. Iowa. Speaking of the mother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and she grew up on a farm, and I every year grew up going to the farm, my grandparents' farm, for a few yeah. weeks every summer. My father was German, and his father worked in the railroad station house in Wisconsin, And uh, so when they met in Duluth, Minnesota, he was still in the process of getting his doctorate in music. music. So I was born in Bloomington, Indiana. He was in Indiana University getting his doctorate. We left a year after I was born and moved to Atlanta. He got a job at Amory and was there, I think, for another five years where my two younger siblings were born there. And so this is when you heard the cello, or when I was left. It? We left Atlanta when I was six. So six. okay. Um, no, right. I wasn't playing anything at that okay. point. Maybe piano. Maybe I'd started plunking on piano. We got piano music lessons, but then we moved to Minneapolis. He got a job at the University of Minnesota, okay. and was the University of Minnesota orchestra director, and then also a music professor. So things started to accelerate for you, I would imagine. Yeah, things started accelerating musically because yeah. suddenly. Andrea started playing violin. I started playing cello. And and then, as you and I were talking about it, a certain time, and I don't remember what year. I was probably in late elementary school, maybe early middle school. My dad designed and started this high school musicians project, which was a music camp where students, high school students, went and lived in dormitories on the university campus in the summertime. And we studied, we had orchestra, we had a harp ensemble, we had piano ensemble, we had conducting classes, and we had ensemble work. And it was complete immersion into music. We had fantastic teachers, camp counselors, we would do little trips down the river, along with creating music and then doing recitals during different points within that month camp, and then a big concert at the end where the harp ensemble would perform, the piano ensemble, the orchestra, the band. Talk about supporting the arts. That sounds like it would be a peak experience. It was. In your life. It was a peak experience in my life. 
I think for probably, I mean, I can't imagine anyone in going to that music camp right. and not having a peak experience because it was so fun. Yeah. Like you're living away from your parents. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> You're in high school. You're yeah. exploring, you know, hanging out and doing music and um Oh yeah. And yeah. it's and university life. Yeah. You know. How many uh summers did you do that? I did it two summers. I got sick when I was 14. I was signed up to go to the camp and I got this neurological muscular neurological disease which really informed how I lived the next couple of years. Um, now, that was something that was not contagious, I assume? This it was is not that contagious. Was... It was myasthenia gravis, very rare disease, and it's a neuromuscular disease that affects your small muscles. So initially, it affected right. my swallowing, my speech, my eyelids, my facial muscles, and then went to the hands and legs. Is there a typical experience with this? Like, do people stay at a certain level? I mean, you obviously I've been cured. shot out of that like yeah. a cannon. Um, yeah. Were there expectations of how it would develop and how you would get out of this? No, it was okay. still being explored. But luckily, I lived in the state of Minnesota where Mayo Clinic was. <gasps> So I spent, my parents spent probably three months taking me from doctor to doctor to doctor trying to figure out what I had. And finally, one of the doctors said, I think you need to go to a neurologist. And within 10 minutes of being with the neurologist, he said, I think you have myasthenia gravis and went into the hospital. They diagnosed it, confirmed it. And then... uh, What was the moment when you knew something was wrong? I... My speech was slurring, and it was a very odd, like suddenly I couldn't, like I would start talking normal, and then I, and then it would turn into garble. Is this an autoimmune disease? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, initially it was, the doctor said, oh, it's psychological, it's a teenage, so oh. that created all sorts of inner yeah. trauma around yeah. that. But yeah. luckily I found, my parents were persistent, and I found my way to a doctor who diagnosed it, mm. and then we went to Mayo. I had the surgery, which removed you had a surgery. Yeah, which removed the thymus gland. Interesting. Which okay. I'm sorry, we're kind of digressing. I just into, love it because yeah. this totally this speaks to your experience because I I yeah. want to know what happened inside you that allowed you. I would imagine that you came to sort of an inner mm. strength. Thank you. I'm yeah. positing that. I'm almost certain. And a lot of great people have gotten sick. You were in my list of greats. Think of Tesla. He was in bed for around, around the age of 10 for quite a while. And he couldn't bear to even to hear somebody talk down the hall. Sheets couldn't touch his body. I think he was getting ready. And talk about digressing here, but I think he was getting ready to receive certain messages about how this world works, how this dimension works. That's my own theory. And I'm fascinated by people who have had to stay in bed and and for a couple of years or whatever, and then able to get back and resume their lives. So I totally believe that it happened for a reason in that way that you find your strength. You get it. You you yeah. spoke to it because while I wasn't in bed for two years, okay. I was in the ICU for two months, okay. almost died. Oh, my goodness. And then was in the hospital for another two weeks and went home really debilitated. I went home with a tracheotomy because my lungs had collapsed. Oh, my. I started high school with a trach, you know, and it was just like my whole body and development at that point was really 
influenced by that experience and also my experience of having this body that had been scarred. And how do we as teenage girls, as your body is developing, face that kind of marking? I was terribly shy. I just pulled Mm. inward. But what happened during that hospitalization was a tremendous relationship was established between me and the nurses. They were my lifeline. It was during that time that I really felt like I'm going to give back. I'm going to enter into the health field because I realized how they really saved me, not only physically, but also just their consistent love. They understood something which then got passed on to you Mm -hmm. on several levels, I would say. They were taking care of you physically, but... You understood something about service at that point. Totally. Mm -hmm. Before I was discharged from the hospital, the nurse that I established the closest friendship with, she gave me a copy of Kaylil Gibran's book, The Prophet. And I, to this day, through all my moves, (laughs) I still have that book and the little inscription that she wrote in the the book to me, you know, and tender, really tender, tender connection and memory. Um, but that, to me, that surrender into almost dying and into illness, it informed my connection to spirit world, to the power of healing, to the power of connection between humans, to ourselves, to all of it. And I think that's also how my music over the years has flown as a river into a healing vein as to the recognition of how vibration can calm their neurological system, how it can bring the body into peace, bring the mind into peace. Well, vibration walks through walls. One of the things I say to the girls at camp and I say to regular people like you is that let's say you put pure vibration next to a bullet. A bullet's going to stop at some point. Mm-hmm. Vibration's going to go through walls and keep going. Mm-hmm. I love that concept. I love that not just as a metaphor, but as a truth, you know. And you said the That's word so surrender. And I feel like, I know that when I'm an audience member and you're doing your performances to the place where they've gotten now, mm-hmm. I can feel that element of surrender and I go into trust mm-hmm. with you. That is one of the wonderful things that you bring mm. with your electric cello, the loops, the music, the effects, which are done to such great effect in the sense that you're not <laughs> overdoing it. Mm-hmm. You're not using it as a device to say, look at what I'm doing. Hey, you know, <laughs> I, can, I can cause this ding, 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 ding thing to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's all in service to, mm-hmm. and I, here we can put in many words, the truth, real power, surrender, all that kind of stuff. But what I'm really saying to you is it is such medicine and it's such a breath of fresh air. Because as you know, I see a lot of performers, I hear a lot of music. Yeah, do. And what I am reacting to now, and I don't care if it's loud or in the spheres, mm-hmm. uh, you said juice earlier, and I'm going to say nectar, yeah. that you bring that nectar in and we all can ride with you. Mm. We're in that boat, that safe place. You bring us to that safe place. And I'm hearing from you that you sort of got turned on to that safe place through the nurses who were ministering to you. And I love that. I love knowing that. I had no idea. I just knew that for me, 
being in your presence as you're doing your art, your your work is like being in church, or it is being in church. Yeah. It's surrendering to pure the purity of everything. Mm. And why else are we here? Why else are we here? Exactly. You know, there's. Um, thank you for that. I mean, I love that image of of sound going and vibration going through walls and bullets. It actually That's never really, ends. Yeah. Yeah. And never. A few years ago when I was working on my latest recording, Timeless, I was at a friend's house and she had this book that I opened up and there was this quote by Gary Snyder that literally I got tears in my eyes because it so spoke to what I try to create in my work. And the quote is this, there is a world behind the world we see mm-hmm. that is the same world, but more open, more transparent, without blocks. Like mm-hmm. inside a big mind, the animals and humans all can talk. And everyone who passes through here has the power to heal and help. Everyone who passes through here has the power to heal and help. Yeah. And that's where I want to take people on this, yeah. on this journey of, of an evening of music. I mean, I even hate yeah. to call it performance anymore because yeah. yeah. it's sort of sure. taken on new meaning for me. But mm-hmm. it's just like I want to take people to that place where you can get nourished and you can get reminded that there's something greater than this chaos that we're in Mm -hmm. where we can come back and bring our best selves and our healing and our help in ways that are so pure and so clear yes and clearly in service to ourselves and others well, I think our best moments are when we somehow enter into the realm of clarity. Yeah. Because that's when, it's not like you're fighting chaos, it's that chaos starts to fall away yeah. as you enter more in, into clarity. Because there really is one space. It so is. So what are you going to yeah. allow to live in there? Right. Are you going to focus on the chaos yeah. or are you going to live within it and just right. find yeah. that calm, that place? Exactly. Let me get back to your <laughs> your music because... Being in the same room with you as you, as we have that musical experience with you, what is so fresh about it or always refreshing is I feel like for those moments, the way that music can bring us into exaltation, Hmm. um, we have a chance to realize again and anew that there is that space. Part 1